Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is February the 14th, 2017, and it's Tuesday. It's also Valentine's Day. Though I saw a statement on Facebook that I really liked today from my buddy Chance. And it said, If you're a guy that tries to treat his woman wonderfully all year long, what do you call February 14th? And he said, you call it Tuesday, man. You call it Tuesday. I like that one. Because, uh, yeah, it's a kind of a hallmark holiday. Though we'll be fixing dinner with each other tonight and enjoying Valentine's Day to a degree here at the Spirico House. So what are we going to talk about today? It's Valentine's Day, so it's supposed to be a day of passion. So we're going to talk about passion, but we're not going to really talk about passion for your significant other. What we're going to talk about is finding your passion. Um, I'm a big believer in entrepreneurship as, as a means of self-sufficiency and self-reliance. I think it's one of the greatest methods of modern survivalism that there is. And I am one of the uh, business uh, advisors in the world. I hate to call myself a guru or something like that, but you know, I, I guess I am a noted person who advises people on paths in business. And I am one of the, the, on the bifurcation there, I say follow your passion as opposed to the group that says, no, screw your passion, follow the market. And I always temper the bridge between the two, but I don't think that's really that important today because here's my view. If you're going to follow your passion in business, great. If you're going to go into business, great. If you're just going to have a job and uh, you're going to follow your passion in your job, great. If you're just going to have a job and you're going to try to make money and enjoy your job as best you can and follow your passion in life, fine. But we should all follow our passion in life. And I'm one of these people that, I don't know, maybe because I am a passionate person, um, I have always struggled with the fact that there are people that don't know what their passion is. Not following it, I understand, because of circumstances or whatever. There's There's been times I haven't, in my life, had a lot of time to do the things that I really love because I was doing other things that were more important at the time to get my, my life stable and my family stable and things like that. But I've always known. I've always known. When people say, what do you want to do? I want to fish. I want to hunt. I want to be in the woods. I want to grow food. I want to forage. I want to cook. I want to teach. I mean, these are the things that if, if you look at what I do with survival podcasts, the things I talk about, and the whole thing is a teaching thing, it, it literally is following my passion. That's why when people say, well, you can't get rich following your passion. I don't know if you can get rich, but you can get damn well, well off, okay? And I know people that have done it and gotten rich, right? But when, when you are a person that's always known what you've wanted in life, when you meet someone that says they're not sure, it's confusing. It's kind of like... I knew this guy in the Army. His name was, uh, I can't remember his first name, but his last name was McAndrew. He was a, a musician, a very talented musician, a guitar player. He played the drums. He played all kinds of things. And he, I was like, you know, I always want to learn how to play a guitar. And he had two guitars. So he hands me one and says, here, I'll teach you how to play some basic chords and stuff, and, and, and you can play. And uh, I'm like, well, okay. And after like 30 minutes, you can see this guy's just frustrated. He can't comprehend why I can't learn to, like, not play as good as him, but be, be able to basically pick up a guitar and sound like, well, I've seen one before. Well, I just don't have an aptitude for it. 
And that's kind of how I felt like I feel like McAndrew did about me with a guitar, with people who say, I don't understand. I, I can't find what I what I really want in life. But one of my other passions is problem solving. It's probably one of my biggest passions. It's to be able to look at something, figure out how to make it better, or figure out how to fix it. Troubleshooting. So I decided to take a look at this, and I've been thinking about this one for a long time, and I've saved it for the Day of Passion, February 14th. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And today's show is titled, Before You Can Follow Your Passion, You Have to Find It. And again, I think if you're an entrepreneur or entrepreneur-minded, this will be beneficial to you. But even if you don't want to have a business of your own, and even if you're not so concerned that your career match your passions, You're going to want them in your life, and you're going to want to design your lifestyle so that they're there. And today's show will help you do that. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and get in, or uh, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey guys, if you're like me, you want the best quality water for yourself and your family. This is why I've used a Berkey water filter for over six years in my own home. But if you're going to get a Berkey or parts for one you already have, you should deal with the best. And that's Jeff, the Berkey guy, Gleason. There's only one official Berkey guy, and you can only find him at his website at directive21.com. Again, directive, the number's 21 and a .com. Recently, a new magazine showed up at my house. I had never seen it before. I had never heard it before. It was Self-Reliance Magazine. And I took a look at it and realized it was from the same people, Dave Duffy and his crew, that have been producing Backwoods Home. They sent me an introductory copy because I've been a subscriber to Backwoods Home for 20 years. I opened the pages and I was blown away. Pretty much you take what Backwoods Home has done for two decades or more, up the production value, and take 100% focus on self-sufficiency and self-reliance topics, homesteading, canning, cooking, you name it, that type of thing, all of the politics stripped out, hardcore how-to. That's the new Self-Reliance magazine. You can learn more at self-reliance.com. And our TSP Business Directory supporter of the day is Mobility Enabled. Mobility Enabled is an inbound marketing firm owned and operated by a U.S. Army veteran and loyal audience member since the JETA days. Mobility Enabled focuses on content marketing and SEO strategies. You can learn more about them at tspbiz.com. There will be a link in today's show notes. And remember, you can be featured in the TSP Business Directory for as little as $5 per every six months. Uh, next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. We have a nice tag team here going today from Southpaw Ben and Alex Shrugged. We have two segments. They are the reunification of Germany, denied, and the state of nuclear weapons. Uh, which I think Southpaw Ben did based on the order of the takes. That's the one I'm going to read today. But some notable births. That kind of fits all of this stuff. Um, Vladimir Putin, KGB agent, FSB director, prime minister and president of Russia born this year, along with John Kasich, governor of Ohio, David Petraeus, Maureen Dowd, New York Times columnist, and in entertainment, Billy West, who's the voice of Fry on Futurama, Jonathan Franks from Star Trek, Uh, was um, Commander Riker, Michael Dorn from Star Trek, uh, Mr. Worf, Dan Aykroyd from Saturday Live and Blues Brothers, Coneheads, Ghostbusters, and a bunch of other stuff, and John Goodman and Roseanne Barr both born this year and end up in the TV sitcom together called Roseanne. In the year in film, we have The Greatest Show on Earth, Singing in the Rain, and Hans Christian Andersen, starring Danny Kaye in various fairy tales. The year in music, we have... 
Delicato, an instrumental by, instrumental by Percy Faith and his orchestra. And we'll soon see people stop calling people that. That's a big thing through the 30s, the 40s, and the 50s. So-and-so in his orchestra. That kind of goes away in the 60s. You Belong to Me by Joe Stafford. See the pyramids along the Nile? Just remember all the while. Number one song of the year. You'll hear it at the end of today's show. And I Saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus by Jimmy Boyd. He's 12 years old when he records that. In other news, Project Blue Book begins, a statistical survey of UFO sightings. But without computers, it's really a filing cabinet and some people making notes. The Mau Mau Uprising begins, also known as the Kenya Emergency, uprising against British rule in Kenya. And Selma Walkerson discovers the cure for tuberculosis. It's streptomycin. He gets the Nobel Prize this year. I don't think people today can understand what a big deal that was, how many people died of tuberculosis uh, for, for such a long period of time, and to find the, an antibiotic that actually was an effective treatment was a massive thing. Uh, the state of nuclear weapons, it's what everybody's thinking about 1952, so let's take a look at it. 1952 was a big year for the proliferation of nuclear arms. To start, the, to start of the trio uh, of major advances in nuclear arms in the maiden voyage of the Boeing B-52 Stratofortress. While it wouldn't be operational until 1955, this new jet-powered major step to better allowing the U.S. to be able to expand its operational range of delivering nuclear weapons. The B-52 was a replacement for the B-36 Peacemaker, which was used a piston engine that drives the propellers, though it was later retrofitted with a pair of jet engines. The B-52 is still in use today due to its good performance at high subsonic speeds and its low operational cost. The next major advancement in nuclear weapons in 1952 was the October 3rd testing of the United Kingdom's first nuclear weapon in Australia during Operation Hurricane. The test was successful and had a 25 kiloton yield, which was only slightly more powerful than the U.S.'s Fat Man bomb, The final major advance in nuclear armament in 1952 was the first ever successful test of a hydrogen bomb by the U.S. on October 31st during Operation Ivy, codenamed Mike. This test resulted in a yield of 10.4 megatons, which is almost 500 times as powerful as a Fat Man bomb dropped on Nagasaki. My take by Southpaw Bend, our new contributor to the history segment. What possible legitimate use could there be for a single weapon that could create a crater 6,240 feet across and 164 feet deep? This crater was the result of the Mike test from Operation Ivy. The U.S. government, in its infinite wisdom, had decided that the best way to remain in the lead during the Cold War arms race was to create a weapon that use could reasonably be called genocide. As Japan had spread its means of production out instead of having them contained in a single factory convenient for bombing. The bombings of Nagasaki and Hiroshima were nominally on military targets as these factories produced goods that were vital to the Japanese war effort. If the U.S. was ever to H-bomb someone, it's hard to imagine that even our allies could justify these use as being against an actual military target and not just the near, using the nearest military target as an excuse for an inevitable massive amount of destruction. With the amount of destruction possible, maybe even probable, should the U.S. ever go to war with Russia, it never fails to, me, to, to, fails to amaze me how many Americans view working with Russia as tantamount to treason. While Russia definitely has some human rights violations, perhaps we would be better off attempting friendly relations with Russia and trying to convince them as allies to change their ways, rather than aggressively pr pressuring a paranoid country that within most adults' lifetime was in a position to wipe the U.S. off the map just as well as the U.S. could return the favor and likely could still do so today.
my take by Alice Shrugged on, on Southpaw Ben's uh, segment. Good one, Ben. I live in Austin, Texas, outside the county line. I sometimes contrast the difference between an atom bomb at Nagasaki and a hydrogen bomb as follows. If an atom bomb hit Austin, it would beat the ever-loving tar out of downtown, but out here in the sticks, it probably would only crack a few windows and maybe knock down my fence. A hydrogen bomb would knock down my fence, my house, uh, and very likely I'd burst into flames. Regarding nuclear proliferation, as we have come to call it, the communist threat of nuclear annihilation in 1952 was real. Only the sanity of Stalin prevented it from happening, and that was a very thin reed to grasp for. It was actually Mao of communist China that was the real threat. Mao was the only man Stalin thought was crazier than he was. I want to speak a little bit to the Russian uh, reference from Southpaw Ben. So, yeah, today every time Trump says anything reasonable about or to Russia, oh, my God, you know, they act like the Cold War is raging again, and they act like they'd like it to. And it's amazing to me that we are, are, are told we have to see Russia as an adversary because of things like human rights violations. And who do we see as an ally? Who do they, who do they say, other than Israel, is our strongest ally in the Middle East? Saudi freaking Arabia. Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia that puts people to death for, for apostasy which is basically leaving the, the faith of Islam. Saudi Arabia that puts people to death for being gay. Saudi Arabia that punishes women for being raped if they were not properly escorted because the rape is then their fault. Saudi Arabia who still has people stoned to death. Saudi Arabia who puts women in the middle of a, of a, of a group of people and has them caned for dressing improperly. Saudi freaking Arabia and we're worried about Russia's human rights violations. Are you freaking kidding me are you freaking kidding me and we have a, a, a member of our house of representatives that thinks freaking Vladimir Putin is taking over freaking Korea these are the people running our country these are the people in charge of things you can look that one up I'm not even going to link to it but I swear to God we had a house rep member who said Putin was advancing in Korea I'm sure she meant Crimea but if you're going to be a member of the freaking house of representatives you should be able to know those two freaking countries apart and by the way the reason that Russia now has Crimea is Crimea voted 98% to join the Russian Federation if we actually believed in democracy like we said we do we would shut our holes and go on about our freaking lives But no. But no. And I'll tell you what. One reason I'm passionate about this subject with, with the Cold War and nuclear proliferation, etc., is because I lived through part of it. And a lot of young people out there being dangled around today by this, this media and all their banter and all their bullshit and all their empty rhetoric about this stuff, you weren't born before it was over. You don't know what it was like. You don't know what that threat was like. And you better pull your head from what we called in the military your fourth point of contact. Because the way these people are acting, you might see it again in your lifetime. And you don't want your kids growing up learning to hide under their desk in case a mushroom cloud comes. And that's what some of these people want to take us back to. Because that's how much they hate the other side. And I ain't talking about Russia. I'm talking about the other side of the two-party false dichotomy right here in this country. The mafia families to run our country would rather... Take us back to the Cold War, then work together. Because they both care so much about being in control of the neo-fascist state is the number two, not the number one. Because the corporatocracy owns them.
Anyway, it's like the WWE wrestling, except not only is it fake, but the wrestlers that are in the fight, they think it's real. That's what our, our political system has become today. Anyway, enough of that crap, because that's stuff that you get angry about and you can't do anything about. Hey, folks, I just want to say, any of you that are or ever have been an MSB or Member Support Brigade member of the Survival Podcast, I really appreciate you. Without you, I could not bring this show to you Monday through Friday, five days a week. You are the primary means by which we're able to deliver this programming and to live the lives that allow us to teach the things we do here at the Survival Podcast. But, of course, you know me. I'm not about charity. This is not some kind of membership like on uh, public broadcasting where we send you a $4 tote bag in return for a $100 uh, donation and call it a donation. This is a value-for-value exchange. You'll get discounts to over 60 companies. You'll get a lot of other great content that's available nowhere else. And you'll get every episode of the Survival Podcast that's ever been produced in convenient zip files. You can download them all. You can learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on Members. Scroll to the bottom to see our different methods of payment, and we'd love to have you supporting our show. It comes out to about 18.3 cents an episode. All right, so... Getting on with it and, and, and talking about following her passion today, I gave a pretty big intro already, but I just kind of want to re reiterate that it is difficult for me to do this show because if you asked me 20 years ago what the things I most wanted in life were, I would have been like nature, the outdoors, hunting, fishing, growing food, foraging, working with animals, solving problems, cooking and teaching. Right, those are the th and if you ask me today, like the list is the same. So to me, this was kind of like I'm a duck. There's a pond. I'm gonna go get in the pond and swim around and and, and splash around and dig in the mud and and eat duck potatoes and acorns and and chase grubs and minnows because that's what ducks do. And, and to me, all of these things, it actually even took me a while to understand how other people didn't like them. That's how much I love the things that I love. Like, how the hell could you not like having a garden? There's food in your backyard. Look, it's pretty. It is, you don't like that. Hunting? You don't want to go out and get your own food? Fishing? You don't? And, and when you, you know, like when I met my wife, and she's not that big into fishing, but it's like, well, I'll go out and sit on the boat and suntan and whatever. And I'm like, why, why can't you do that while you fish? Or why can't you do that while I fish? And like, she wanted to do the thing together. Like, I don't understand. Like, the stuff that I loved, I loved so much that I figured everybody must love it. That's how you know it's your passion. So, before I start telling you kind of how I think you should find it, I want to explain that I don't claim to be an expert in this. There's stuff that I... I don't even claim to be really good at teaching what I'm going to try to teach today. Because I don't know if it'll work for you. But it's the best I could come up with thinking about this problem for quite a while and talking to people that have it. I am not a psychotherapist or a psychologist or anything like that, but I am a problem solver. And what I'm giving you today, you should take as being advice that may or may not work for you, and you should apply the pieces of it that make sense to you, which is how you should take everything. But in this case, I need to really kind of state that again at the beginning. Starting out, I want to talk about why does this even matter? Why is it important? Well, because your life sucks if you don't have a passion in it. And most people do, and, and they just don't even recognize it. And, and that's part of what we're going to try to learn to discover today. But, I, I mean, I kind of want to point out, like, if you're not doing things in your life that you love, and every day the clock goes tick-tock, tick-tock, and your heartbeat is going, da-dump, 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 get in touch with this finite reality. There's a day that your heart's going to go, da-dump, da-dump. 
And that's it. You believe whatever you want about the next plane of existence, the other side, heaven, an afterlife, a nothingness. But it's to this life that silence is permanent. And we were given that thump, 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 I believe to do something with. And no matter what it is that you're passionate about, if you're not like a psychopath or a sociopath, no matter what it is, you can do that and do good for others at the same time. It, it makes no sense to me that we would live a life that's finite, without pursuing the things that we want, that we love, that we believe in. And it, 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 it is, is completely foreign to me to believe that to be successful as a human, we would have to not do that. Or to be successful as a business person, we would have to not do that. Or to be successful as an employee, we would have to not do that. It should be that we can find something that either enables or empowers or is directly applicable to our passion in our careers, in our lives, in our families. We can do that if we'll, if we'll make an effort for it. And it's important because it's the best way to live. You know, this is the survival podcast. There's, you can survive and never have to worry about feeding yourself. Go out and commit enough crimes until they throw you in prison for the rest of your life. You know, do victimless crimes so you don't hurt anybody, so you don't feel bad about it. But just go get yourself in enough trouble, you know. And when you eventually go to prison for life, they'll feed you, they'll clothe you. You'll never have to, but do you want to live that way? So I take it to the extreme to make a point. Most of us have built this like kind of bubble prison around ourselves, these boundaries that we hold ourselves in. And some of those boundaries are important because they keep us from doing stupid shit, like getting, like getting screwed up on dope and laying in the street. Okay, That is a good boundary, like stealing something just because we want it. As we mature, I think they're less inclined to do that. But as children, you have kind of that, I want that, and you learn the boundary that's wrong, and we have those boundaries. So we become experts at those boundaries. And at the same time, we then apply those boundaries to places where they're not necessary. We, we start thinking about the things we dream about, the things we want to have in our lives, etc. And then we say, well, I have to be responsible. And to quote Richard Bach, the greatest way to avoid responsibility is to say I've, I've got responsibilities. To use other responsibilities as an excuse for not pursuing your responsibility to do the things that are meaningful to you in life that will have the most impact for good. Right? That's why it's important. And I also want to talk about a little bit of a lesson from the, our friend the dog. I love dogs. I'm a dog person. I understand dogs, I think, sometimes better than people. Because dogs are simple creatures in a way. They live in the now. They have things they carry as baggage or tools and learning and experiences from the past. But if a dog feels safe this moment, even if bad things happen to it in the past, those things are in the past. Now, if it sees something that triggers that memory as a warning, it will go on alert and it will either attack, cower, run, avoid... But it doesn't walk around thinking about that thing all the time. Humans do. Everything that a basic human being doesn't want, beyond the things that are uniquely human, you could say the same thing about a dog. A human doesn't want to die. A dog doesn't want to die. A, a, a dog doesn't want to be too hot. A human doesn't want to be too hot. A dog doesn't want to be too cold. A human doesn't want to be too cold. A dog doesn't want to be too wet. A human doesn't want to be too wet. You sort of see where this is going. 
Dogs don't really want to be alone. They're pack creatures. And humans, in general, don't really want to be alone. Even a lot of people that are hermits don't really want to be alone. They've adapted to being alone. But the human is concerned that I'm, someday I might be cold. Someday I might be hot. Someday I might die. Someday I might get sick. Someday I might, I might, I might. And they actually sit around worried about all these things that they don't want. And the dog says, life is good right now. Now, there's the whole ant side of preparedness, understanding what could go wrong, and, and setting up things to either prevent them or mitigate them if they happen. So you can't completely be like the dog, but we, most people should be more like dogs than they currently are. They should move that way on the spectrum. Because then we take it to all the uniquely human things we want. The dog doesn't care about debt, right? But the, So the dog doesn't sit around going, I'm afraid I won't be able to pay my bills. But the person does, even while they're effectively paying their bills. They, they don't think about having to put their, their puppies through college. We sit around and we think, I might not be able. We have so much negative programming in us that we sit around thinking about, I won't be able to do this, or I'm afraid I won't be able to do that, and we can't live in the now. How the hell can we follow our passion? You want to see a dog follow his passion? Throw his toy out in the, in the, in the field for him to go after it. No matter what was going on two minutes ago, I like this, this is fun, it's this play, I'm going to go do this. Or even a working dog. You know, a police dog that's trained, you know, to, to, to get bad guys out from under a car. The dog, it's, it, it's a passionate thing. It's, it's what he does. And if we could learn to just have a little, not a hundred percent, right? Because then we would be dogs and we're humans, not dogs. We're a higher level organism. But if we could just have a little bit more of that in the now moment, then we could find our passion. Because how can we find our passion otherwise? How can you possibly find what you're passionate about when you're worried about all these fears and all these things that could take away what you have? You actually become resistant to following your passion. Because the more you fear loss, the greater you actually fear acquisition. It's kind of the opposite of greed. So it's the same thing that when people say, well, I don't want to garden because if the shit hits the fan, someone will steal it from me. It's that same psychological dynamic. Well, it would be better that you had it right up until somebody came and took your stuff than never have it at all. It's that same type of thing. So try to take a little bit of a lesson from the dog. Let's talk about some reasons people don't know what their passions are. I'm going to be, I'm going to go in descending order, kind of like being the most optimistic I can be about why to the most uh, harsh of criticism of, of the fact that it's your own fault, right? So the most optimistic it can be, you have yet to experience it. It's possible. You just haven't found the thing. You've never experienced it. When I say think about the time you were really happy and you're like, meh, you're serious. There's never been a time where you've thought, I could do this every day for the rest of my life. There's been never, you know, that perfect moment that we'll talk about in a little bit. That's a personal perfect moment. Not just, well, the day I got married, the day my kid was born. Okay, I'm talking about a per You've never had it. It just hasn't happened. It's possible. Probably not true. But then the solution is easy. Go try everything you can think of that you might remotely like until you find it. And make your passion finding your passion until you find your passion. It's that easy. Unfortunately, it's probably not the thing in your way if you're one of these people who say, I can't find my passion. The next one, and this one is a, a, a highly likely thing for a lot of people, they think it has to be something big. 
They think it has to sound like if you admire what I do in my life, you think it has to be something like me. He wants to hunt and fish and have big acreage. And he wants to go travel the world and go on safari. And that's a passion. And I don't have something like that. You know, my simple passion is I, I, I want to be able to stay home and raise my kids. Well, the problem is not that you don't know what it is. You're afraid to admit that it's something that simple. And the funny thing is, if you admit to the simple passions, you'll find bigger things in life. But I think one of the reasons that I think women struggle with this more than men is women have been lied to. Women were told, especially about the time of the, the history segment we're going through, the 50s, the 60s, and the 70s, that you were being held back by the men, and you were supposed to get out and have everything that a man had in his life, the way that a man had it, and you know you shouldn't be kept home raising children. And I think it's very important that women have that opportunity if if they want it. But we've we've gone so aggressive with it that we've actually convinced women that if if they say, well, I just want to stay home and raise my kids, they somehow have let down the world. They've let down other women. They've let down society. They're not pulling their weight. They're not doing their share. Well, it, it just so happens that there's a fairly large number of women. If you got all the bullshit out of their way and they were told you could stay home and be a mom and take care of the house and take care of the kids, they would find that heavenly. That idea would just be one. And there's a whole group that would say, that's not what I want. Well, you shouldn't do that. But no one should impede or look down upon those who do. And there's probably men that fit that role to a degree too, but I'm telling you, I've seen enough people in my life There's something about women when it comes to caring for children that's beyond men. We are innately different and we are innately the same in different points in our lives and in different characteristics. And we should, if you want to find your passion, you have to take all the stereotypes of what everybody's supposed to be or what a man's supposed to be or what a woman's supposed to be and you have to just shit can it all. And you have to worry about, well, what do I think I want to be? What do I want to have? So we have to get out of the realm of believing that your passions have to be this really big dream. Because the easier it is to attain, it's great news. That means we just need to do that. And what will happen is if you attain that thing, whatever it is, even if it seems small, and then you find contentment in your life, you'll be able to look out and you'll give yourself permission to see things that you want that are even greater. Because... This also brings me to my next one. Another reason is that people misdefine passion. They, they don't really know what it means. They think of passion in the conventional, like, romantic sense, where you just can't help yourself. That person you meet in your life, you just want them in your arms so bad. And they think that whatever, is the, like, your life passion has to be the same way. Well, it, it might even be that way, maybe for a time, but... No, no relationship, no romantic relationship lasts that way. You go from like the, 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 the I guess you'd say the, the new dating phase, right? And where there's just, you know, and you get past the initial like does he, does she type thing and you actually get together and you, when it becomes serious, there's like this incredible bond. And then, you know, maybe that leads to marriage and usually like right after marriage and then it's real and it's even more intense. And then as relationships mature, There's plenty of passion for each other, but it's not this obsessive, compulsive type of passion. It's it, it's a contentment. It's a happiness. It's I'm glad I'm in this relationship with this person that I'll spend the rest of my life with them. 
And what we're when we say we're looking for a passion in life, we're trying to find that white hot moment as though it would be there all the time rather than that contentment. So another reason you may have trouble finding your passion is you're misdefining it. You're looking for something that's too intense instead of just something that you are content with and you like and you love pieces of it and parts of it, but not everything. Because most of us, we don't love everything about our partner. I guarantee you, I guarantee you, if you ask Dorothy, do you love everything about Jack? Well, no, no. And she'd probably give you a laundry list of shit she doesn't like. He leaves shit laying around all the time. He has half-done projects everywhere. He has a temper. And I'm not going to say it, but I could make a list too. And we all could of our significant others, the parts and pieces we don't like. So we're misdefining passion because we think we have to enjoy and love everything about it. If we don't even treat our, our, our love of our life that way, why would we treat the activities in our life and the lifestyle we build that way? I am passionate for permaculture, but I don't like fixing broken pipes. If that makes sense. But fixing broken pipes in my, on my property is part of doing permaculture. The next one, and this is where I'm going to be most critical, and it's probably the truth. For the 99% of people that say they can't, you know what it is in your heart. You're afraid to admit it. You're afraid to admit what you really want. For various reasons. It's the same common problem that I, I've identified talking to people over the years. Some people are afraid to admit it because it's not that big. Like, they, again, they're back to that, that one where I feel the obligation. But instead of the person just like they misidentify it, they do know that it is just this, this, this is all that it is. But they won't admit it because they, they feel some sort of obligation for it to be something more important. The more insidious version, and the one that I think probably is the biggest thing holding most of you back, is that the minute, the minute that you admit that this is what you want, no matter how big, how attainable, how unattainable, whatever, then it's a target and it's on you to go after it. And as long as you can piddle the shit around and say, well, I really don't know what I want, and I'm not sure, then you can remain comfortable but you can't have real enjoyment and fulfillment in life. And you've traded comfort for the discomfort that's required to attain the things you really love. You're comfortable in your mediocrity. And if you were actually passionate about being mediocre, there'd be no problem with that. But you're not. You're not. You want something more. And you fear that the minute that I admit this, I'll become responsible. And you don't think about it consciously that way, for God's sakes. You're not some nefarious asshole against yourself consciously, but you are unconsciously subversive to yourself. Well, that's not really what I want. And what you're really saying when you say that is, that'll be so hard, that'll take so much work, that'll be so much effort, that's so unattainable. So, I mean, I look at it, if, if what you really want, if what you most want as far as passion is completely unattainable, you'll never have it all, but you can get 50% of it, that's pretty good. So admit it and pursue it. One way you can start to kind of define what it is you want is to start out with something much easier. What don't you want? What things do you not want in your life, especially things that are already there? And these will often not have a direct corollary to your passion, but they'll identify your passion. So for one thing, I think most people that are in debt and feel like it's hard to pay their bills... 
and they're trying to pay off their debt, one of the first things that would come to their mind, what don't you want? Debt. I want this debt gone. So that doesn't mean you're passionate about a lack of debt. But what does removing debt enable? Well, more money. You're probably not passionate about money. Money is a symbol for energy. It's an illusion. It's a hologram. It's a fictitious thing that we use in society to symbolize energy so that we can trade it for things. So it would be the things with which you would acquire with that money that would lead you at least in the direction of your passion. And almost everything you can think of that you don't want in your life will symbolize something that you do want in your life with a corollary. So I don't want to have to get up in the morning at 4.30 to go to work and work until 6 o'clock at night. Okay? I can understand that. What would not having to do that mean for you? I could sleep later. You're probably not passionate about sleeping later. You have to, you have to do the mental exercise here and go forward for that. I could spend more time with my kids. Oh, you're passionate about your family. What would you do with your family? I would take them here. I would do this with them. So are you passionate about those things? Sometimes yes. Sometimes no. I used to take my kid fishing. I was passionate about fishing and being with him. I used to t go to take him to his, base, his basketball games. Not passionate about basketball, but passionate about seeing him develop as an athlete. But one of those has a personal passion for me. The other one is the family unit. And that is incredibly important. But if we can't develop individual things. Now, if, if, the, if the family happens to go along with that, like fishing and my kid going with me, woohoo, great. It's a total win. And we don't have to find things that we have to do alone. What we have to find are things that we would do alone. Things that we would pursue if we were by ourselves. And that we would still find joy in if we were doing them by ourselves or with total strangers or, or just acquaintances or just kind of not really close friends even. I love going fishing with a buddy, but sitting alone in the woods watching a, a line go and hooking a fish and watching it jump out of the water. I'm pretty happy about that too. Love to do it with my wife on the rare occasion I can get her to do it. She's actually pretty good at it. She enjoys it when she's doing it, but she's not passionate about it. So we have to accept that difference between us. So I try to incorporate things like fishing and hunting and outdoors into my entrepreneurship. You may or may not feel the need to link the two. Maybe the entrepreneurship enables the lifestyle that lets you do the passionate things, even though the, the actual product or output of the entrepreneurship is not the product of the passion. You're still following your passion. You're enabling your passion. Um, you also have to think about what are the things that you just... Uh, um, what makes you angry? I'm, I'm sorry, I missed my notes there for a second. What makes you angry? And of those things, which do you have influence over? So if you're saying, well, you know what makes me angry? Um, all this crap going on right now that Trump's doing or all this stuff that people are saying about him because he's trying to do a good job. Either, either side of that. Okay, I have a solution to that. There is something you can do. Turn the TV off and stop paying attention to it. If something's really important, somebody will tell you. But you don't actually influence that. That is circle of concern. So within your circle of influence versus concern, what are the things that anger you, that upset you, that trouble you? And you need to rectify those. 
It's very hard to find what you're passionate about while you're angry, while you're upset, while you're scared. All of these things interfere with you giving yourself permission to do the things that you really want to do. So that those those are all really important components to kind of ask ourselves and, and figure out as we go down this walk and figure out the things in our life. And, and again, in many instances, give ourselves permission to admit the things in life that we really want. For whatever reason, we're, we're, we're not willing to ad admit those. And then we can start defining our lifestyle goals. What do we really want in our lives? And I think one thing we need to ask ourselves is what things do you do that make you the most happy? What are the things you've done in your life where you were just completely content? When you thought, I don't, I don't need anything else but this. Those are pathways to the broader passion. Because your passions generally are, are not going to be so specific because the human mind will be bored with something if it's all the time, every time, the same way. But those pieces probably tie into something else. I can think of incredible moments with fishing, incredible moments with hunting, incredible moments on vacation with my family, parasailing and stuff like that. The commonality, though, is they're all outdoors. They're all nature-related. So nature itself is a, is a bigger component to what I am personally passionate about than the individual means by which I partake in nature. You're trying to find that kind of macro level thing because then it makes it much easier to dovetail your life, your career, or your business back into it. What things do you do that you just don't want to stop doing? Where you, you just like, for me, fishing's like this. Eh, it's kind of slow. Caught a couple. 4.30. You know, I'll leave at 5 today. Yeah. And it doesn't even really pick up. But at five, you get what you call last cast-itis, right? One more cast. One more cast. Things like that. When, when you lose track of time doing something. When you think, wait a minute, how did I just spend four hours doing this? And you're not really mentally tired from it. Or you don't want to quit until you are mentally or physically tired. Those are things that you feel passionate about. The big question, they used to say a million dollars, but I don't think a million is sufficient anymore to make the mind expand. So the question I would give you, if I gave you $10 million, what would you do with it? And let's just imagine I gave you $5 million first to do all of the bullshit that you'll use to get in the way of this mental exercise. I would pay off my family's debts. I would set up college funds for my kids. And blah, 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 blah. Okay, here's $5 million. That's already covered. Now you're sitting with a pile of $10 million. I paid your taxes. No more money out. It's yours. Now you have to go. The condition with this money is you have to do things in your life that make you happy with it. What would you do? What kind of place would you live in? What would your average day be like? See, because if you, if you let your mind answer that question and you stop getting in the way of it, all of a sudden, the, 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 the nagging voice that says that's not possible, that's not possible, 
the mind doesn't know that it's not real. If you let yourself believe, you create basically a virtual universe for yourself in which this actually occurred. The mind in this universe will go there with you, and it will give you the answers. It will tell you what you really want to say, but you have to believe in it. You have to be a little kid for a minute. You have to dream. Remember when you used to dream? Remember when you used to imagine? Remember when you were like my kid? He was four foot nothing, little four foot nothing white kid that thought he was going to be a better basketball player than Michael Jordan? He wasn't going to be a better basketball player than Michael Jordan. I sure as hell didn't tell him that, though. It doesn't matter that the dream won't be attained. It matters what will the dream allow you to obtain. So you have to say, in this dream world, you have $10 million. What would you do with your life? And if your first answer is, I don't know, you haven't gone there. You haven't gone there. You've, you've refused the mental exercise. You're being mentally lazy and mentally apathetic, and you're being fearful. You don't want the answers yet. So quit being a little whiny bitch. I'm sorry to be this way with you today, but quit being a little whiny bitch and answer the freaking question. What would you do with it? Without trying to sound like a philanthropist, unless that's what you're passionate about, what would you do? And ask yourself this. Have you ever had a personal, perfect moment? Because, again, it's not that these things aren't important. The day I got married, that will stick with me forever. But that's not what I mean. And you know that's not what I mean. I mean something that even if the, the you know your kids or your wife or your family or your parents sort of was with you, it would have been perfect anyway because of what it was. I'll give you one of mine. My family was with me, sort of. They were asleep in a bed about 150 yards from where I was. We were vacationing in Sanibel, Florida. And I got up early in the morning. Tide was going to be just right. The surf was going to be calm. Sun's coming up in the east. And it's coming up, so it's behind me because I'm on Sanibel Island looking out toward the west. So the sun's behind me, and it's reflecting off the water. And the gulf is clear. Standing up to your waist, you can see your feet. The water is like turquoise and blue and twinkling. And they're asleep because they don't want to get up early because they're not passionate about fishing. And I catch a few fish. And I toss a lure about as far out as I can as I'm skipping it across the surface. A trash fish, for all intents and purposes, something you'd never eat called a ladyfish, which looks like a little tarpon, a little silver ribbon, hits this. And this fish is about 18 inches long. And I hook this fish, and it comes up on its tail, and it tail walks about eight feet across the water. Literally tail walks. And the sun is just at the right angle that it looks like a polished 18-inch silver strip of mirror going across that water. And even talking about it now, the hair is up on my arms, remembering that moment. And I thought, in that second, I could do this every day for the rest of my life. You've probably had a moment like that. And it probably made you afraid. Because the best way to avoid responsibilities is to say, I have responsibilities. This didn't make me afraid because I already knew, well, of course. But it still was a moment in time, a perfect moment. And you should make a list of those perfect moments. 
Find the commonalities in them. Again, my greatest commonalities would be teaching, inspiring people, being in nature. I know that. I know I am grateful for that today. 20 years ago, I knew that, but I wasn't grateful for it yet. I didn't know that it was rare to be willing to accept these things and to know these things. But I'm telling you, your life is better if you, if you just accept that right now. That, that it's, it's, it's less fearful. It's more beneficial to be willing to accept the things that you really want and to seek them than to sit in contentment with mediocrity. Next, this is going to sound odd. Let's say I was going to send you to prison. Okay? Not, well, all prison sucks, but not a bad prison compared to anything you can think of when I say prison. Your prison is going to amount to, yes, it's a prison campus. All the other people in prison with you are kind of people like you. They're there because I said you had to go, you really didn't do anything wrong, and you're not going to want to hurt anybody, nobody's going to get shibbed or shanked or anything like that. You're going to be fed three square meals a day, and it's not going to be typical prison food. It's not going to be the greatest food in the world, but it's going to be decent. Your cell is going to basically be like a dorm room without a roommate, unless you want one. You're going to have a bed, a nice bed. You're going to have a refrigerator. You're going to have basically like a college dorm. You're going to have an outside area you can walk around in, but there's a fence and you can't leave. And basically all your basic needs are taken care of. You're going to be comfortable. You're going to be safe. You're going to stay there for a year. And because you're a good prisoner, I say to you, unless it's something that will enable you to escape or do harm to another person that you're in prison with, you can take 20 things with you. And when you start saying, I want my baby pictures, whatever, you know, books, um, whatever, make the subject one thing, not the individual book one thing. And those can go on a Kindle reader or something. Don't try to be, don't try to be saintly about this. Don't try to be, you know, uh, Mother Teresa about this or some shit. The basic stuff you got. What would you take with you? Make a list of 20 things. They're going to start heading you toward your passion, the things you're passionate about, things you really care about. You're gonna you're gonna have a phone. You can call. You can write. You know what would you what would you want to have with you for yourself? That's that's a serious question. And when you were allowed to leave for you know work release or whatever, if you want to call it that, what would you go do other than go home and visit your family? Other than go home and visit your family. There's a certain amount of uh, release in this where you get to go see your kids and your wife. And, whatever, and there's a certain amount of days in this little mental exercise. So you got to be willing to mentally do the exercise. you got to be not mentally lazy. There's going to be 20 days in this year that you get a day outside and you can go do anything you want, but you can't go home. You can't go see your kids. You can't go see your wife. You're in prison still. This is a training prison for the Ned Flanders alternative universe in um, The Simpsons. Okay? For a little pop culture. To be willing to do this. But this day, you can go anywhere you want for a full day. 
You can do anything you want for a full day. But it has to be about you. See, one of the things is that people are so selfish that they use selfishness as an excuse. Right? So I don't want to be uncomfortable, so I'll pretend that it's selfish to be concerned with having the things I want in my life. That I should be sacrificing everything so that other people can have what they want. That makes you miserable. Then you're a dick. No one wants to be around you, and the people you think you're helping, you're not. So I'm asking you to stretch today. Those 20 things you would take, and on those 20 days of release, where would you go and what would you do? Every other week, you know, for 40 weeks, you get released. And you get to take 20 things with you. What would they be? I'm serious. I want you guys to actually, those of you that have this issue or they want you want more clarity into what you want, sit down and run this mental exercise. Next, answer this question. Who do you see as truly successful and why do you feel that way about them? The second part I think is actually more important. If you can drill down, again, not being mentally lazy. I'll give you a for instance. My uh, my nephew and his wife are building a business of their own right now, and she gets some negative feedback. I'll leave it at that. And he's like, don't even worry about it. He basically handles it all. And he said to her, she, he said, who is the one person you know that does whatever the F he wants and doesn't give an F about what anybody else thinks about him. And she said, Jack. And he said, well, do you want that? And she said, yes. He said, then let's just keep doing what we're doing because it's working. See, she didn't think I was successful because I have an aquaponics system. She didn't think I was successful because I have a podcast. She didn't think I was successful because I have a business that pays all my bills. She thought I was successful because, and he knew he knew what he was doing when he said this to her, because she'd said it many times before, I was able to do whatever I wanted. Her definition of success is freedom. Paying the bills, a business that takes care of it. It's the ability to live your life on your own terms. And that's one of, one of the things that she's passionate about. She wants to be able to be in control of her own life. What she admires about me isn't the stuff that I have or the means by which I acquired it. It's the ability to do whatever the hell I want. And I don't know if it's quite as... It's quite as much freedom as she thinks it is. I don't know that I'm that. I think she thinks maybe I'm more successful than I am. I think is way, but whatever. She's got it. She understands it. So when you say I want to be like so and so, what is it really? If it's the things they have, then that leads you to where you want to be. But if it's their freedom or if it's the good they do, you have to think about like is it the output or the thing, and define that for yourself. And all of those things will help you define your lifestyle goes, goals. What are the things that you do that make you the most happy? What are the things that you do that you don't want to stop doing? If I gave you $10 million, what would you do with it? Personal, perfect moments without trying to be Mother Teresa about it and say, oh, when my kids were born, when I got married. Whatever. I understand that. Those are all there too, but the personal ones. 
right? 20 items you would take to prison with you, and the 20 places you would go during your 20 days of release when you can't go home. And what do you see as a truly, who do you see as truly successful, and why do you feel that way about them? What is it really? And maybe you might find out you thought this person was successful in your heart, but you really, that's not who you really admire. Maybe it's somebody else. But you were saying that to yourself all the time because you were defining success improperly for yourself. defining uh, Misdefining passion. So let's talk about some special cautions before I give you what I kind of see as the roadmap to getting there. Number one, uh, just because it feels good doesn't mean it's good for you. So I said, you know, what makes you really happy? Well, I, I'm sure if you shot up with freaking heroin, you'd be happy at the moment you did it. I've never tried it, so I don't know. But there must be a reason people do it a second time. I'm sure eventually it leads to physical addiction, and people are doing it so they don't feel bad. But it must in some way feel good at first. But I know not to do that because that's not good. There's people that get involved in like multiplayer reality games on the Internet, non-reality, and they can't get away from the keyboard. Those are two obvious examples of so what I'm want what I kind of want to temper my advice of does it if it feels good that might lead you there you got to temper it with is it is it is it bad behavior is it self destructive behavior you know if you told me you're passionate about pornography I'd say find a different passion seriously okay um, so just kind of temper that next just because it works for someone that you admire doesn't mean it will work for you. So sometimes we look at somebody and say, hey, they're really successful in this world over here. So that means it's possible to be successful in that. So now I like that. So now I'm going to go do that. No. No. I mean, one of the guys I really admired, especially more in the beginning than I do now, because now it's just the same crap over and over again, was Gary Vaynerchuk. I actually admired him most when he was doing a podcast on wine. I like wine. I really do. And I like to go and uh, try different wines. I, 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 I do. I um, like to go to wine tastings. I have an affinity for certain types of wines. Uh, I like to pair wine with food. I know a lot about wine, but I'm not passionate about wine. He either was really good at faking it or he's really passionate about wine. And, and I think he was actually in, in a path to greater long-term success if he had just stuck with that. Instead of going out to, I'm going to teach people to be entrepreneurs and be a social branding wizard so I can buy the Jets. But maybe he's more passionate about buying the Jets than he is about wine. I don't know. It's up to him. But just because he was successful podcasting about wine didn't mean I was going to go podcast about wine. In fact, if you think about it, I might have mentioned wine here or there on the show, but I've never done a podcast called 10 Great Wines for the Prepper's Closet. Probably could. But the fact that I haven't done it in over 1,900 episodes means that's not what I'm passionate about. Again, I'm trying to give a simple example because I, I see so many people and I say, well, what do you want to do? And they say, I want to start a YouTube channel and I, I want to do homesteading and record all my stuff and put it up there. Okay, fine. But is that are you doing that because it's an easy answer to how you monetize something? And maybe that's even okay. But does that mean it's what your passion is? For some people, yes. For some people, it's simply emulation. So if you're emulating something, it's not necessarily bad, but you better be honest with yourself about it. You, you really should be honest with yourself about it. Um, next, 
the number one thing, this is a very specific caution, and I've mentioned it a couple times, but this is so important to understand this. The number one thing separating people from their passions, either identifying them and, and, and stating them in the first place so that we can target them, or from actually, if we know what they are and we'll admit it, actually going after them and acquiring them is fear. And fear in, in different ways. Fear of failure, self-doubt. I'm not good enough or I'm not worthy. That shit has to go. I've said this before. I'll definitely say it again today and I'll definitely say it again in the future. You deserve what you want. You deserve what you want. If you're not a psychopath, if you're not a sociopath, you know, if you want to keep somebody in a hole and tell it to rub the lotion on or you're going to spray it with a cold hose again, right? You know, if that's what you want, then you don't deserve what you want. You deserve a bullet in the head. But assuming that you are a rational, decent, reasonable person, you deserve what you want. You might have to work for it. But you deserve, and we, we have been taught by society to think that you deserve what you want is selfish or wrong or conceited or whatever other adjective you want to throw at it. And, and, and I know some of you are thinking, Jack, you're the guy that says you're entitled to nothing. I didn't say you were entitled to what you want. I said you deserve it. See, you deserve it to the same degree that you're willing to do the work for it to acquire it. But you deserve it, and you deserve the opportunity to go after it. And you're good enough to get at least more of it than you have, I promise you. So if, if, if the, the goal is 100 and you can only get 75, you'll probably be so freaking happy you'll get tired of being happy. So, so go for it. Go get it. So the roadmap. Stick with some uh, pop culture references here. I think a good way, once you've kind of done these things and thought about these things and done these little mental exercises, kind of like your, 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 your roadmap for like the, the, the close of the race here to kind of come out with some real answers about it. Number one, pick a day and be Peter Gibbons for a day. Some of you know what I'm saying, and some of you people are like, who the hell is Peter Gibbons? Peter Gibbons is the main character in the movie Office Space, right? Um, <laughs> so in this movie, if you haven't see, seen it, Peter has a dream to do absolutely nothing. That's what he wants to be able to do is absolutely nothing. And uh, he ends up hypnotized. Uh, by a, like a psych, psychotherapist, and the psychotherapist dies while he's in the hypnotic trance. And so he goes around, kind of spaced out for a couple weeks, still in this trance of just not giving a shit and not caring, right in the middle of a merger buyout of his company. And his boss expects him to come work on a weekend, and he doesn't show up. He just doesn't show up. And when he finally does come back to work, His friends are like, you know, you, you could get fired or whatever. I'm not worried about it. I said, well, what did you do? He said, I did absolutely nothing. And it was everything that I dreamed that it would be. You know, I talked about how we live with this, this fear. I won't be able to pay the bills. I'll be cold. I'll lose this. I'll lose that. I won't get promoted. They will promote me, and I don't want that promotion. I'm going to have to work nights. The kid wants something I can't afford. Whatever it is. All that shit in your head. It's like cluttering up RAM on a computer. Every once in a while, the computer needs a reboot. For us to reboot, we need a, a Peter Gibbons day. Do absolutely nothing or do very little. You know, walk in the woods, sit under a tree, listen to birds. 
go to a spa, get a massage, if that, whatever. But do as little as possible and clear the mind for a full day. And the next day, write an essay. Don't think about it on the nothing day. Okay? The next day, get out a piece of paper and write on the top like you're back in school, like you're in 10th grade and I'm your freaking English teacher. I'm giving you an assignment. Put across the top of that, my perfect day. Go into the world with the $10 million. Think about the list of things and places from the prison experiment. And describe your perfect day. From the minute you wake up until you go to sleep that night. Where you live. What your house is like. What your kids are like. They're already grown. If you have grandkids, whatever. Whatever it is for you. I don't know what it is for you. If I did, I'd just tell you we wouldn't have to do all this stuff. Okay? But you... you You know, what would, what is the first thing you would do? Is it, is it make breakfast or was, is it take a walk? Are there dogs in this? Are there cats in this? Are there animals in this? Are there people there with you? Who are they? What's your three meals of the day like? Where do you have them? What are your activities? Remember, this isn't just, this isn't my, my average day when my life is great. This is a perfect day. This is where everything, like this is the day you could live it over and over and over again. Stop the romantic, you know, Manchester by the Sea or Notebook or whatever kind of chick flick bullshit. I'd get married. No, 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 no. no none of that crap. I understand that. No, you're already married. You, you, you know, we're done with that part where now it's about mostly you. Now, how other people interact with you throughout the day, make sure that's part of it. All the way up until, and I fell asleep, happy and content. Like, I'll give you the, yeah. I, to give you the, the, the first line and the last line, I woke up and I fell asleep happy and content. You fill in the middle. You do that. And you tell me you don't know what your passion is and you actually took all this shit seriously, I'm going to tell you you're full of crap. I'm going to tell you go do it again until you're willing to admit what your passion is. Because what you just wrote, it's all in there. It's all in there. Remember the rules too. Remember the, the reasons people, you know, misdiagnose this, I guess is the way to put it. A lot of times they think it has to be big. It has to be amazing. No, it just has to be what you want. What you want. So now we've had our Peter Gibbons day. We've write, written our perfect day essay. Now we take that and we realize that every day can't be perfect. So we define the lifestyle. So you might jam-pack so much shit into a day that it really is kind of over the top. But what you're saying is, I want these things in my life. Going back to being a kid, it's like saying why, why, why. Do you know what kids say why, why, why? They do that because, and you get annoyed because you're using different words. They don't have the vocabulary you do. They're saying, tell me more about that. I like this. I want to talk about that. So when you say, well, we have to put the dog out, and the kid says, Why? And you're like, because the dog has to go out. What the kid's actually saying is, I want to understand. Because he has to go poop. Well, why? I don't know, because he eats. Why? Because he's hungry. Why? In the end, he's trying to process the whole situation in pieces. We have to flip that around, and we have to put the things into our lifestyle that we want in pieces. I love to fish. One of my passions. I'm not going to fish every day. 
I have a wife that I want to be around. I'm passionate about that. I have a, a farmstead. I have animals. I'm passionate. So all of these things take blocks of my time. But then what I have to design is, is a lifestyle that's conducive to fishing, to hunting, to hiking in the woods, to including my family in these things, where they want to be, to making time for just them. And that's how I built this lifestyle. I designed it. I didn't fall into it. Oh, gee, look at this. This is great. And that's the problem. Most people are sitting and they're, they're hoping that if they just keep following the rules and doing the right things and working hard and yada, yada, that, well, you know, it'll all just work out in the end. Aren't you glad, like, when you get on an airplane, your, your pilot doesn't think that way? Right? Aren't you glad he has a flight plan and contingencies? Built into it. We're going to fly from Los Angeles to New York today, right? We'll be traveling across, you know, the country. We'll be crossing the Mississippi River. I'll come on the radio and tell you about it when we do that. If you're sitting on the right side of the aircraft as we fly past uh, the uh, Grand Canyon, you'll notice that. Like it, it, it kind of. They don't do that just because it's you know like interesting. They do that because it kind of. Well, this guy knows where he's going. You know, basically, yeah, he's he's heading to where we're going. You know. But uh, could you imagine if it was like, hi, this is Captain Jack Spirico of your flight today. Hold on a second. Where, where the hell are we at? Uh, we're in Jacksonville, Florida, and uh, we're heading to where, where are we going? Where are we going? Seattle? That's a long ass. What? Seattle? Are you, are you, yeah. So we'll be heading from Jacksonville, Florida to Seattle today. Uh, not sure which way we're going to get there just yet. It, there's a couple different ways we could do that. And uh, First thing I'm going to do is I'm just going to get this big old plane off the ground, and I guess I'm going to point it sort of... Uh, So the north and west from here, and uh, we'll we'll see how it goes from there. And if we all just work hard and get along, I'm sure we'll end up in. Hold on a second. Was it Seattle? Seattle, yeah. By the end of the day, w would you not be saying, "Get me off this freaking airplane," or at least looking around for a film crew, thinking it was some kind of reality show or some kind of joke or something? But yet, isn't that how we run our lives? You know, think of it as a ship, a, a, a ship leaving Japan, sailing to, to California. It happens every day. Leaving Chinese ports and heading to California. It happens every day. 99% of them don't just arrive at their destination, they arrive on time. Why? Because they plot a course. They adjust speed along the way. They See, this is how you get your, your lifestyle managed into your passions is you actually define what you want and then you design it. These are the things that I need to do to be able to have the things that I want and when I have those things, this is how I'm going to use them to make sure that I never lose them. Where most people think, oh God, I hope I have this someday. And once they do get something they want, they spend most of their time afraid they're going to lose it because they didn't design it so they don't really understand how they got it in the first place. It's really not that hard. Then, once you have the design, you build the path that matches your lifestyle goal as soon as possible. You start taking steps in that direction this minute. I'm going to use what I... I'm going to keep going back to fishing. You want to fish five days a week, whatever, right? <laughs> It's a very uh, noble goal, I guess, but... 
can you figure out how to fish once every two weeks at least right now, even in the lifestyle that you have, or, or twice a week, or whatever it is? Go get that. In, go get that part of it into your life. So you start experiencing it and say, "Is this real? Do I really want to do this, or do I think I want to do this?" Right. Same. Same with what I don't want to keep using my examples because I don't want to put ideas here. I don't want your own ideas to form. But get pieces of them into your life as quickly as possible and start designing a path to have them in a cohesive manner. And it really is that simple. And, and the, you might say, well, how could it possibly be that simple? Well, because almost nobody does it. That means that anybody consciously doing it has an advantage over 95% of the people competing in the world for what they think you want or what you think you want. Because most people are just kind of like fumbling through life. They're following the design that was handed to them. You know, my, my final thoughts today about all of this are understanding effective and useful fears and ineffective fears, fears that are debilitating, fears that are obstacles, fears that prevent you uh, from having the things that you want rather than spur you on to get them. You know, A good fear is if you're standing in a road and a car is flying at you, you get out of the way. That's a perfectly valid fear. So I want to take you back to this heartbeat thing. Your heart, boom, 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 and the reality at some point, boom, boom, boom. Silence. No more chances. It's over. Whether you live to be a hundred or fifteen, there's people in all those numbers and outside those boundaries. And you just don't know. You should be more afraid of not making the best use of those heartbeats than you are of failing when you try to do so. Or you should be more afraid of, of living your life doing things you really don't want to do because you're afraid the things that you do want are just too simple or not important enough. Remember what I said. I mean it. Dead serious. You deserve what you want. And if you have a problem with that, if that if that sets the hackles on your neck up, if you're like, I don't know about me, that's your problem. That's why you can't find your passion. You have to actually believe that. You deserve what you want. But remember, I didn't say you're entitled to it. So you deserve it. You just have to go out and work for it. And if you'll do it, you can have those things. If you enjoyed today's show and you want to support the work we do so that we'll always be here to keep doing more of it for you and give you all of the great information and education and hopefully some entertainment while it's all going on, uh, consider short show, uh, supporting our show. When you do your shopping on Amazon, just go to tspaz.com first, T-S-P-A-Z.com. Go there. Click a link. Go to Amazon. Buy your stuff. You've supported this show You've, you've spent not an extra dime because it was something you're going to buy anyway. Though I do have items up for review on a daily basis uh, on T-SPAS for you guys so that you can uh, learn something. And we do talk about preparedness here. I'm doing another Encore item like I did last week, an item that I featured before. Uh, these are called Monoprice Releasable Cable Ties. They're zip ties, right? Put them on, you know, zip tie. They're black, so they're UV stabilized, and they have a little lever on them. So when you put them on something, you don't want it there anymore. Instead of cutting it off and throwing it away, you push the lever and take it off. 
They're only about six inches long, but if you need one longer, you just put two or three of them together to make them as long as you need them to be. I use them all over the homestead. Uh, I make gates for the ducks that use them as, as latches to close the gates, and they work perfectly for that, especially gates that we open you know, four or five days in a row and then don't open for another two or three weeks for rotational gates and stuff like that. They work great for that, but they fix stuff. They, they're just great, and I think that... You know, most people would say zip ties in your bug out bag, zip ties in your get home bag, zip ties in your vehicle kit, zip ties in around the homestead. Great idea. Well, when you get the releasable ones, you get all of the benefits of, of a zip tie and you get, you know, you, you, you get a little bit more because you get reusability and, and that makes them, you know, go a lot longer for everything from fixing the cables coming out of the back of your computer to in the story I did a write up on about a redneck friend of mine who fixed a tie rod on a truck with zip ties once. Uh, myself and a friend, another friend, ended up in that truck driving it without knowing he did that. I'm not advising you do that, but it does kind of show you the uh, versatility uh, and the indispensableness of the zip tie. I think that the three things that if, if you said, what are three things you need in, in any repair kit that you know are beyond tools and parts, I would say tarred bank line, Um, zip ties and um, uh, uh, duct tape, right? If you give me a fourth, I'd say bail and wire. You give me bail and wire, zip ties, tarred bank line, and, and duct tape, and tools, and if I can't fix it, it probably needs a, a professional technician to fix it, or it's beyond repair. Um, I can probably at least make it work for a little while. Zip ties are just that cool. Check them out. Mono price, releasable cable ties. They're the item of the day today. Uh, really cool, really great product. We use them around here all the time. And remember, you can do all your shopping through tspaz.com to help support our show. Finally today, uh, song of the day. And uh, as I mentioned in the history segment, it's called You Belong to Me by Joe Stafford. And this is like a Joe like as in Joanne or Jolene, right? This is not Joe like Joe the Plumber. Uh, beautiful, beautiful voice this woman has. And, and the song is is multifaceted for the time. Again, we're in 1952 here, number one song of the year. Um, there's two things you see here. One is one we've seen commonly through quite a few songs in a, in a row now, love song. Passionate love song for Valentine's Day. I didn't plan it that way. That's just how the, the numbers worked out. But definitely very passionate, very deep, very loving song. And we still have this kind of this growth of the American family coming with the baby boom. Remember, the baby boom isn't just the kids that were you know, hatched out of the egg in, in 1946. This continues. In fact, there's, there's even some level of uh, ramping up of it in some levels because officially uh, the war continued in Europe and Japan to 1950. And a lot of service members ended up staying in European theaters um, during reconstruction and rebuilding and things like that. So we're, getting, we're constantly having this return of men who have been away for a long time back to their families. And, of course, we have the Korean conflict going on, and that's creating its own little mini baby boon as men return for that. So this is this, this, this love song era going on here for a while. But the other thing is the world is beginning to shrink, The world's beginning to shrink. It's getting much more reasonable for the average person to think about getting on an airplane and going somewhere. You know, just, what, seven years earlier when the, when the war ended, almost every man that came home from Europe or from Japan came home on a ship. It took months to get there. Um, now it's more likely that someone could just get on a plane and go see Paris. 
and travel the world or just travel the country. So people are traveling more. And you see those two themes kind of wrapped up in this song. You can go to the Nile, you can go to the pyramids, you can go to the jungle, you can go anywhere. But remember, when you come, you know, while you're there, you belong to me and you're coming back to me. A very passionate song that fits today very well. And again, you listen to this music and you start going, no wonder there's so many of those baby boomers out there, man. This, this, this greatest generation that came home, they got, they got on board with this baby production thing in a big way. And I think music like this is part of why. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. So alone.